you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thanks, guys, so much for downloading and listening. Uh, if you have been enjoying our podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, first, let me welcome Robert and Elizabeth, our new patrons for this week. Thank you guys so, so much for your generosity. I can't tell you guys how much your support of this podcast means to me, all of you on the Patreon. It has been really such a humbling experience to go through this Patreon thing and see how much you guys have supported the show. Uh, Robert and Elizabeth, don't forget, you can come and join us during the broadcast, the U.S. broadcast of each new episode. Just go to, uh, and we do a live discussion over there during the airing of the show. Just go to patreon.com slash island. then go to the posts. You'll see between 8.30 and 9 o'clock on Tuesday night, Eastern Time, um, I will put a uh, discussion thread. Um, there's no new episode this week, so we won't have one this week, but the following week we will. Okay. I also want to start today's show off with something of a plug. Uh, if you would like some fun Christmas listening for this for this weekend, uh, just head over to Sit Downs and Sessions at podbean.com, or you can find Sit Downs and Sessions on Apple Podcasts, uh, and take a listen to our version of The Christmas Carol. Myself and my friend and fellow radio host, Chris Poe, are joined by a cast of friends of ours, plus musicians and all sorts of people, and we do a live reading of the Dickens classic. Um, I do the narrating. I also wrote most of the script, or just sort of cobbled together the script and do the uh, engineering and all that. And Chris plays the part of Ebenezer Scrooge, and then we have this just this incredible cast of people who read the other parts, and they're just reading it. Like, they're, like there's no rehearsal or discussion or anything like that. We just do this every year. It becomes sort of our tradition for all of our friends to get together and do this, um, and we put it out. It's sort of one part radio, you know, old-time radio play, and uh, one part just a bunch of friends hanging around and being a little goofy. Uh, I'll put the link on our Facebook page, too. I hope you enjoy it. Merry Christmas, everyone. All right. We have some questions and comments to get to from you guys today. So let's actually start with an email I got from a listener named Paul. And this goes back a couple of weeks ago, Paul. And I told you I'd get back to you, and I did here. Um, he writes, Dave, first, thank you for all the time and effort you take to put into the podcast. It is much appreciated. My question is, does anyone know who Al Strachan took or stole his treasure from and what the treasure contained? If I'm correct, there were court documents that he took a treasure, but not sure if stated what the treasure was or who it belonged to. Thanks again, Paul. Uh, thank you in advance. Okay, so Paul, the reason it took me so long to get this answer for you is because I'm not an expert on Al Strachan. I mean, I've read all the books by James McQuiston, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert on him or the theories surrounding him or the history behind what he, who he was and what he might have done. But like I said, I do know someone who probably is the world's foremost authority on this very topic. Uh, a great friend of the show, James McQuiston, who has helped us so many times, helped us again here. I sent him your question, and he sent back this answer. Al Strachan stole the treasure from George Keith, who was the Earl of Marischal, or Marshal, of Scotland. It's a hereditary position that allowed the family to acquire a vast amount of wealth. The complete list of treasure is listed in some of my books, beginning with Oak Island Knights. One item was 26,000 British pounds worth of Portuguese coins called ducats. 
Another was 3,000 mercs or 800 British pounds. There were many other items. I believe the treasure could be worth a billion dollars in today's money if it is all still intact. Jim. Paul, I I would really suggest to you uh, to start reading Mr. McQuiston's books. They are fascinating. And the amazing thing about them is that Mr. McQuiston isn't, I don't know how to put this, he's not researching a lot of times when people get want to write a book about research that they're, they're doing, they'll take years and years sometimes researching the topic and then put out one book. They'll hold back all this research until they've got what they think is the theory, is the extent of everything they know. And then they'll write a book based on, on all of this work and their conclusions. But he doesn't do that. What he's actually doing is writing book after book as his research expands. So he puts the reader, if you've been reading the whole time, through this sort of journey with him of what he discovers and where this all connects to, uh, you know, and, and all these places that it goes. And it goes to a, a bunch of different places, especially when you read that first book and see where we are now. It's absolutely fascinating. He has, I think, five books all on the subject. I would read them all in order, starting with Oak Island Missing Links, which is from back in like 2015 or 2016. But if you don't have that much time to put into it and you want to kind of get up to date quickly, um, I mean, I I really think you ought to read the last three. Uh, And they are in order, if I'm not mistaken on the names here, Oak Island Endgame, Oak Island and the Mayflower, and Oak Island and New Ross. And that's what I mean by how his research is taking us to different places, right? We're going from uh, <laughs> from Scotland to uh, the Mayflower, which you know was in England, and then over to uh, Massachusetts, and then back up to Nova Scotia. I mean, it just goes and goes and goes. These books are not huge volumes; they're all very readable um, and absolutely worth it for somebody who is interested in Oak Island theories. And I'll say this too. Um, of all the theories being researched right now and and being uh, sort of developed as we speak, and certainly of all the modern theories, what I can tell you is that in my mind, this one is the most compelling to me for many reasons. But I think the most important thing is if you believe that the Oak Island mystery is indeed about a treasure, these are the books for you. Uh, I hope that helps, Paul. Thanks for writing in. Sorry that took so long. It was just a little bit hard for me and Mr. McQuiston to kind of connect during the holidays. We went, kind of played email tag a little bit, you know, a couple days falling apart there as the weekends came and kids started doing crazy stuff. But uh, anyway, I hope that does the job for you. Okay, let's head over to Patreon with a message from Mark who said, catching up on last night's episode, and this was last week he's talking about, you notice Dr. Brousseau's side, uh, slide captions Quote, no gold was detected. XRF reading of AU likely due to false positive. This was about 36 minutes in. Well, I got to tell you, Mark, um, you have an eagle eye, my friend. That's a heck of a spot. (laughs) Mark is correct. Uh, And I believe if memory serves, she was looking at that little piece of scrap metal when we uh, for this particular slide. Um, And and I, I what I it was the bell metal, right? As she defined it. But uh, whichever it was, the team thought they had gold, I think, in both. Uh, Either way, after making a huge deal about there being gold in these items, the only way we as the viewers find out that those tests that we saw, 
that these scenes with the XRF reading and everybody going, oh, gold. And then we go to a, a commercial break and then come back and we have to watch it again. And then, oh, gold, right? Um, the only way we find that out is by Mark noticing the fine print in a slide that, in fact, that whole scene was a false positive. As I tell you guys all the time, if you don't hear a follow-up on an artifact, that's because there is nothing more they want us to know. Now, a lot of times, that means they don't find out anything more. But most of the time, it means they did find out more about this artifact and that what they found wasn't supportive of the treasure theory, so therefore it never makes it to the show. It is a very unfortunate, um, I think, consequence of the treasure hunt being part of a television program. It's understandable in my mind. It's less understandable in other people's minds, uh, but it is a fact. And that is, and here is a great example of that. What they want is whatever speculation was put out there by the first look, by whoever you know, who, whoever sees the thing. Uh, first and says something. The great example is the swa- the end of the swagger stick from last year where Gary Drayton said this was a end of a military swagger stick. Well, it turns out what it was was a lipstick cover, right? But they don't want to tell us that. They want our brains to remember only the swagger stick and get that sort of subconscious feeling of mounting evidence of British military presence. And this one here that Mark's pointing out is another great case in point. They want us to go the rest of our lives thinking that this was, in fact, maybe a piece of gold treasure, even though they know that it wasn't. Again, this is a consequence of the television show. It's been going on for years. Um, I do not blame the Laginas for this. Uh, I, I do blame the idea of making a compelling narrative out of all this and not really making a documentary out of all this. I blame that more than I blame the Laginas or anything like that. Um, and again, this is what <laughs> this is what they do. But every once in a while, we've got people like Mark who can uh, who can spot these things and fix this for us. And that's not all about Dr. Brousseau here. Uh, If you read the print on the other slides, the good doctor tells them that there are scratches on the button and uh, which they caused, which were caused by a poor cleaning process. (laughs) She even suggests how to use, how to do this correctly using a softer cleaner. Uh, So she kind of admonishes the team there in one slide. She also says the button could be from as late as 1800. Now we make a big deal about being up until 1776, but then she writes in there, could be as late as 1800, uh, which definitely puts it into uh, the time when people were living on Oak Island. But maybe even more interesting, you remember when Rick, and I think it was Rick, points out how one of her slides says that that bell metal was used in making cannons, that the Portuguese and the Spanish used it for making cannons. Well, the sentence right before the cannons reads, quote, may have been used as a valve body, piston ring, or bearing. And now if you read it closely, it does not say that this piece may, in quotes, have been used to make a cannon. But it does say it, quote, may have been used as a valve body, piston ring, or bearing. But I guess there's no reason to talk about that that you know, that it, that's probably what it is, right? It's better to talk about the cannon. Now, and, for, and it's also important to to note this from what I know about these scenes and how they're shot. And from the people who have done a lot of these scenes before 
I can pretty much guarantee you that Dr. Brousseau and the team talked about the valve body piston ring or bearing, but it gets cut out. Mark, I got to tell you, man, <laughs> awesome job. Keep that e eagle eye open. I'm, you're the official eagle eye here of the Diganook Island podcast. Let's go now to an email from Steve who writes, Hi, Dave. That was sad news about Joy Steele. I'm waiting for my copy of Mystery of Oak Island, Sol uh, Mystery of Oak Island Solved to arrive, uh, which I ordered after hearing your interview with Gordon Fader. It's a great book. You're going to really enjoy it, Mark, for sure. And uh, our, our best to um, the family of Joy Steele and to Mr. Fader for during this uh, difficult time here. Uh, even more depressing was the shutting down of the majority of archaeologists' work. The historical cultural story has always been more interesting aspect of the story to me. It has been developing a good record of what happens, so the timing is especially bad. That said, the show has not always had archaeological support in the past and was still interesting. I remain cautiously optimistic that Laginas will maintain some level of historical curiosity and not totally focus on the treasure hunt. Okay, let me stop here. Steve, I think last week showed us, how do I put this, uh, that the whole hubbub about the closing of the cutting off and the shocking mandates that we can't do that really was much ado about nothing. What we know now from watching this is that they can continue digging almost all of the swamp, except for in this small corner portion of the swamp, right? And not digging is certainly not going, not digging there is certainly not going to stop them from continuing to uncover history, it may slow them down for that particular project. Uh, but it's not going to stop them from uncovering history if they so desire to do that. And obviously, you know, it, this is not a permanent stoppage. There's no such thing. At some point, someone, some way <laughs> can stop, can start digging again over there if they so desire. Anyway, Steve continues. The lack of information revealed and shared is indeed frustrating, especially when an interesting find is made. Then nothing further is heard of it. However, from the investments made and continuing to be made in the sh into the show, the funders have enough information to justify their investment. In your last podcast, you talked about gold traces, and they are appearing on many items. Could it be the amount of gold they are finding now has basically always been there, but they now have the XRF on site to find it? I wonder if they have been if they have gone back and rechecked some existing materials they had previously dug up. Well, Steve, maybe, but. Um, I think what we really have to wonder about is now going forward is if we never actually hear Dr. Brousseau confirm that an article, that an artifact does contain gold, can we as objective viewers now, after what we learned from the last uh, conversation, can we as objective viewers now actually trust the word of the team and assume that it does? Can we go forward if they pull out another piece of metal, if, 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 if Gary pulls out another piece of metal and then we put it under an XRF and clean it up and the team and the archaeology trailer finds that it's got trace amounts of gold. But yet we never hear from Dr. Brousseau as to how much gold or what it is or anything like that. Can we now can we assume that it actually does contain gold or can we assume that maybe it doesn't? Since they never bothered to tell us what the doctor said in the last one, now we know they might not in the future. Anyway, <laughs> let me continue with the email here. I think I made my point. I came across this video and thought you might get a kick out of it. I've never watched anything on that channel before, so don't know anything about them. Uh, this is a video he sent me um, 
I don't even know the name of it. Uh, let me see if I can get it for you. Hold on. Um, okay, it's like a video podcast on YouTube called Decoding the Unknown. Um, they do a lot of things like, uh, I mean, just looking quickly over here, they do things like the Dyatlov Pass. And uh, let's see what else he's got here. He's got um, Pirate Treasure on Oak Island, Escape from Alcatraz, Aliens Building the Pyramids, that kind of stuff, right? And uh, so anyway, that, that's what he's talking about here. And he writes, uh, the video is about 30 minutes long. The subject line of the email is a quote from the presenter. And the subject line of the email that he sent is searching for kick-ass treasure on Oak Island with Rick and Marty. <laughs> it's nothing new that I heard except a theory that the horizontal levels of the logs found by McGinnis and friends was a Viking ship buried vertically. Have you ever heard of this? Looking forward to next week's podcast. Regards, Steve. Okay. Steve, I'll tell you, you sent me this video. I hung in there for a little while. <laughs> it's not my kind of thing, if I'm honest. Um, th these these sort of things, it's a lot of, um, how do I put this? Not, not a lot of counterpoint, just a lot of sort of speculative theories and fun stuff. And um, the guy actually tells me, and <laughs> right off the bat, that he doesn't know anything about Oak Island. Um, you know, and you write that in there. He says he never heard anything about Oak Island anyway. So I, I watched some of it. Um, there's a million podcasts like this. You certainly, it's certainly interesting, very well produced, a lot of pictures on it and things like that. So if it's something you guys are into, you certainly should go check it out. Decoding the unknown. Um, again, I see it here on YouTube, but I'm, I, it looks like from the way he's presenting this, that he probably has an audio podcast as well. Anyway, to, to your question, I'm babbling like crazy here. Um, I never heard of that theory before. Uh, that doesn't mean it isn't a theory out there. Um, and it also doesn't mean I've never heard of it. I've never seen it before anywhere. I just don't come across it enough for it for it to come in as a sort of well-supported theory. Uh, there's a lot of theories about what that could have been. There's a lot of theories about whether or not it actually, you know, those planks or whatever actually existed. Um, or if that's just all apocryphal. Uh, it, it isn't, again, this doesn't seem like a very well-supported theory just because it never pops up if I ever, ever even heard of it before. Um, but I'm going to look into it a little bit more for you, Steve, and you do the same. If, if you find out more about this or see this anywhere else, let me know. It's kind of jogged my memory a little bit on it, uh, but I haven't read this one, uh, at least not in my memory. Thanks for another great email, Steve. Okay, I, I think we only have one email left here, so... Let me get to it. Yes, this is from another Steve in Ohio who says, uh, Dave, enjoyed the most recent podcast. A few thoughts. I share the perspective of, it sounds like, many listeners. I'm not sure I can power through another three months of ox shoes and, quote, I think we hit the edge of a shaft, quote. We get a lot of that this week. Uh, the rubber is going to have to meet the road here at some point. Okay, let me stop here. As you mentioned, Steve, you're not alone. Uh, and I've said this before. I think the money pit stuff is getting a little... A lack of sounding too downbeat here. It's getting a little monotonous, you know. But I think it's just simply the result of waiting for Vanessa Lucido and her, you know, big heavy gear that she brings onto the island to start digging these giant cans into the ground. Uh, that's going to be the showstopper. That's going to be the second half of the season, I would imagine. Um, and we just sort of building up to that. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's starting to get a little slow. I'm not going to mention that a little bit later, too. Steve continues. My vibe as we move forward is that something like the following happened on the island. The Mi'kmaq were on the island intermittently for centuries before the Europeans, pre-1500s. 
if there is a treasure or pre-1795 treasure workings, they were done by the Portuguese possibly to hide something. And as mentioned previously, possibly specifically the military order of Christ. The writers love to grab the earliest date for everything. So if C14 testing says this dates from 1450 to 1650, the writers have Clotworthy exclaim a timber from 1450. Same thing when Carmen Legg dates a metal artifact. The best practice is probably to grab a date in the middle of the range, not at the beginning. Seems like all of this work was done perhaps in the middle of the 16th century, 1550s or so. I just want to stop there. He, he, what, he, what, what he actually usually says is, from as early as 1450? <laughs> anyway, continues. Then the British military were probably uh, fr- were there probably from 1730s to 1770s, 200 years after the Portuguese. They weren't there looking for treasure. They were there fixing their ships, making pine tar, uh, and using the island for as a staging base to fight the French, 1758 to 1768, such as the siege at Louisbourg. Uh, this, this would explain the many British military artifacts dating from that period. That's it. Don't know that it needs to be more complicated. A scenario like this explains much of what the searchers have found so far, at least in my mind. Doesn't seem to lead to significant conflicts among artifacts and finds. Have a great weekend, Steve. Steve, another great email. Thank you so much for writing in. Um, I mean, you always have such great thoughtful emails here. But uh, what comes to my mind is that this has got to be a frustrating thing for these guys, to this, this lack of being able to really zero in at all, right, on a timeline or even a time frame for when they think, um, you know, uh, when they think a treasure was brought there and buried. No less a suspect, right? They can't even kind of get the times right, no less who it could have been. But they haven't exactly been helped out in this regard, right? This isn't their fault. The dating information that they get from these artifacts they find is just all over the place. You know, from the swamp being you know, the Middle Ages to pieces coming out in the 1600s. I mean, it's just everywhere and, you know, and all things in between. Um, And the records are hard to come by from anything before like the 1770s. And even theorists that they bring on to talk about these things seem to be all over the place in their theories as well. This is what makes Oak Island so interesting to me. This is why I do the podcast. This, I mean, really, when you get right down to it, this is it, right? Because it covers so much of history. So what I will say is this. I can poke holes all over your timeline, too, uh, and pretty much anyone else's as well so far because of these things, right? I think we might be zeroing in on a time frame now with some of the research done, not only by the Laginas, but by other researchers out there where we're finding something undocumented and and of pretty large scale happening on the island. But in my mind, it's 50-50 best whether that something that I'm talking about here actually has anything at all to do with burying a treasure or anything like that. Steve, always great to hear from you. Okay, that's all for this week's emails. Thank you guys so much for writing in and uh, taking part in this podcast this week. If you have any questions you'd like answered or a topic you would like to hear discussed on a future podcast, just send me an email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Let's take a quick break and uh, come back and discuss this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. All right. Um, 
I think I've said this a few times recently, but there really isn't a whole lot to discuss here in this episode of uh, Season 9, Episode 8, Deeper Digs, Bigger Stakes. Again, another pun that'll come out later um, of the Curse of Oak Island. Um, but, you know, after a really, after a wild and exciting start to the season, the show really has kind of settled down to something that reminds me a bit more of most of the 2020 season, right, than of the previous seasons. So this might be a little quick, but let's get to it. Uh, first, we head to the swamp where Billy Gerhardt is digging extensively at the southern end. Uh, they pull out a flat piece of wood, uh, what looks like a plank of some kind, and then uh, later some wood stakes later on in the uh, in the episode. Of course, this brings the inevitable discussion of a ship in the swamp, and we talk about what I call the SS Maddie Blake and all that. That's the thing on the seismic scanning from a few years back. Discussed this all before, but for anyone new, the quote-unquote ship anomaly that they keep mentioning in the swamp, they keep showing that vision, that 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 image, the graphic of uh, what the seismic scanning guys showed them. They essentially disproved this. Um, they went into the swamp, drilled on it at a great expense with this huge barge, um, and this was just a this was the right after they found out the information. And they essentially disprove, I think it was just like a pocket of sand right down there that showed up in seismic scanning as an anomaly. Seismic scanning doesn't pick up if it's wood or anything like that. It's just different from the, from the, the you know, it's, it shows that there is a pocket of some density difference there compared to the ground around it. Um, yet we still keep hearing about it all these years later. And I wonder if that isn't a portent of things to come. I would think that if we were just hearing about it again for the first time, but we heard all about it again last year, too. Anyway, so as far as I'm concerned, until there's some reason to believe that um, that great drilling project in the swamp was incorrect, I'm just going to chalk this up to, uh, again, just trying to keep things, keep hope alive, I guess. Uh, so there are two things worth mentioning here. I mentioned last week, but it bears repeating. The artifacts we are seeing here that they're pulling out, the stakes, the plank, certainly seem to be pointing towards evidence of a wharf that extended from here out into the bay, back when sea levels were much, much lower than they are today, rather than pointing towards a, a ship in the, buried in the swamp to connect two, um, two uh, islands together and turn two islands into one, which honestly at this point seems something like a fairy tale, if you ask me. Um, hopefully this year they can do some off offshore searching and find more evidence of that wharf, but that's a more complicated thing, takes a different kind of permitting, those sorts of things. That's why you haven't seen them do a lot of offshore work, which would make a lot of sense considering that the island would have been a whole lot bigger. I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, a plus a wharf's presence here would... Uh, let's keep let's 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 be honest. Would for all intents and purposes sort of end the idea of a ship in the middle of a swamp, right? So that if they find out that there was indeed a wharf there and these pieces come from that wharf, that kind of ends that whole uh, wishful thinking <laughs> narrative. Now, speaking of sea levels, as I mentioned, here is the second thing I want to mention. Um, our friend Steve, our aforementioned Steve, during uh, the live discussion on Patreon, said, "quote I think that everyone's forgotten." That if Gordon Fader is right, and he's the geologist that we mentioned before, you could walk uh, to what was Oak Island today, you can walk out to what is Oak Island today in the 1500s through land. That'd make it the Oak Island or the Oak Peninsula. <laughs> and I think it changes how you would might look at the place and what happened here. And he's absolutely correct. Now, 
I'm not an expert on these things, but this is what Gordon Fader showed a lot of people on social media. Um, and he is he is an expert on these sort of things. And I'm not 100% sure that the island would be entirely just a peninsula. Um, and I'm not 100% sure of the time frames. I think he put in 500 years. But the fact remains that the island would be much bigger and the ocean much further back from, for instance, from the road that goes across the swamp um, than it is now. And that, in my mind, makes the idea of there ever being a channel between these two islands to be and these, you know, almost impossible. And there certainly wouldn't have been the ability to put a channel that there would have been a channel there that somebody could drive sail a ship through. If you just do the math on the water and how you pull those sea levels back. That's just that's just no way. I would have been a fjord in order for that to happen. It's 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 a, it's a fairy tale really at this point. I hate to say that because I know a lot of people like this theory and they find it exciting and it's a very popular theory. But if you really start looking into it and talking to geologists and people with expertise in this thing, it it, it just doesn't seem possible. Now back to the stakes they found. They are big, certainly hand cut, uh, but they don't tell us much here um they show at the end some of the team looking at this, at the end of the show, some of the team looking at it, discussing in the archaeology trailer. But we get nothing definitive in this episode. So let's keep an eye out. Um, let's make a note of whether or not we get more of these in the coming weeks, more of these stakes. All right, now before we take a break, let's head over to Lot 22 quickly. The other side of the island where the team is looking for something called the hatch or the hole under the hatch or something on Xena Halpern's map. Now we talked about this many times, but quickly... I don't believe the map is authentic, or at least I have my serious doubts. And I, I believe where they're looking, if they are using the map, and they do believe that this is the hole under the hatch, uh, that they're looking in the wrong spot. And, and I can't for the life of me understand why they don't seem to know that or understand that. Um, but be that as it may, Gary Drayton is metal detecting with Michael John. He is one of the guys on Billy Gerhardt's crew. Uh, we saw him last last season on the show, and I think this might be the first time we've seen him this year. Nice to see Michael back. Um, the guys find a chunk of lead and also what looks like another piece of a strap similar to the one they found a couple of weeks back. Now, blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg comes to the island in what looks like a fantastic Corvette, but we're going to have more on that next week, and, and tells the team the strap is old, like 1600s or 1700s, that kind of time frame. He says it would have been used for something like a heavy-duty trunk, like uh, to hold silverware or something kind of like heavier cargo. Um, it's interesting. Certainly not evidence of Xena's map being correct or accurate. Either way, uh, it's still pretty interesting to see. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and discuss the money pit. All right, the episode actually begins over at the Money Pit as we hear of a new hole being dug. This one is called DE 1.5, I think is what they said. It's 11 feet southwest of the Money Pit. Um, Charles remarks that there is, quote, no historical record of anything in that area, meaning no record that they have of searcher activity being done right here. These guys say things like this a lot, and they say it in sort of a very definitive manner and that it means a whole lot. And, and they're right. There is no record. But what I always like to remind you guys is um, when you start getting into the research, especially the money pit area, you realize that these records are sketchy at best, especially the records from before, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. Any of the work done in the 1800s, sketchy at best. 
But be that as it may, uh, this is a new area for the team and certainly a new area in sort of recent searching. Um, Anyway, they find a little pieces of wood at 69 feet, uh, like little shards of wood, and then bigger chunks at 83 feet. Guys think they're chipping off the sides of something, some structure. It could be, but if this is completely new ground, I'm not sure why such a structure would begin all the way at 69 feet down, if that makes sense to you. Uh, They continue to find this wood all the way down for another 20 feet. Um, now that certainly seems like a structure and not a tunnel, right? I mean, no, what, nobody would create a 20 foot high tunnel. That's a heck of a lot of work for tunneling under for not a whole lot of reasons. Um, you know, especially if you're just trying to bury a couple of treasure chests and, or maybe some books, it would be weird. Uh, it could mean it's a shaft, but again, why weren't they finding it at 69 feet or above 69 feet? If that's what it is, I mean, you begin a shaft at two feet, right? Uh, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. I'm not trying to say that means it's not what this is, I, but I think it's a question worth asking at least as we go forward. So later on, despite finding this interesting and unknown 20-foot wooden thing, they decide to find a new place to dig. Honestly, folks, these things are not well explained by the producers and the editors. Like, why would you find what looks like 20 feet of a shaft in one place and then say, hey, let's go somewhere completely different? There must have been a reason. We just don't get it. Um, I mean, there just had to be more to this conversation than we got. So let's, you know, and the poor editing kind of makes it a little confusing for us. So just we'll just kind of have to go with these things. Regardless, Rick wants to drill to more to the west and south, certainly more to the south, it looks like, away from C1 to look for what he calls Shaft 6. Now, longtime listeners of the show will know exactly what Shaft 6 is, but for our new folks, and we do have quite a few, Let me explain it again here. Shaft 6, and they do a good job on the show, but let me just expand a little bit for you. Shaft 6 was dug in the early 1860s by a group of treasure hunters called the Oak Island Association. It was another of the many attempts over the decades to dig a hole kind of down next to the money pit shaft, uh, back when they knew exactly where the money pit shaft was, right? And then tunnel horizontally across towards what they thought would be the spot where the treasure vault would be found at the bottom of the money pit. And this was done in hopes, essentially, of bypassing the flooding, which they thought was a booby-trap flooding system, and thus getting to the good stuff without having to bail thousands of gallons of water out in order to do it. Again, this very same type of thing, this very same type of project, this idea of getting at the treasure from sideways, somewhere, some way besides straight down the money pit shaft, happened a lot, especially back in the early days of the treasure hunt, and it never worked. Uh, It didn't work here in Shaft 6 either. Um, As they got closer and closer, as they tunneled horizontally towards the money pit shaft, mud from what we assume was all the water in the money pit began oozing into Shaft 6 and piling, piling up into their shaft, into their new sort of tunnel. Again, this was presumably coming from the dirt at the bottom of the money pit being filled up with water for years and years and years from the flooding. The guys nearly got buried alive in this muck, Uh, and later they started pulling out what was and looking through what was really 12 feet of mud that ended up at the bottom of this pit. Um, And then workers found in there pieces of aged and hand-cut wood, including what looked like a part of a barrel or a keg. Now, if you're in the 1860s, there's really no reason why a searcher would have put such a thing down there. Right, especially when you look at the Oak Island Association, or very early on in the in this process. So this is a very exciting find. Um, 
this was the evidence that they were tunneling towards what they were looking for, right? And it was also evidence that whatever was there was probably destroyed in some way, right? That that if anything was buried in there, whatever it was buried in, whatever structure was was made around it had probably collapsed and destroyed a lot of what was down there or at least scattered it, right? This was the first evidence of that. So this new hole the Laginas are, are digging called G2, and it is indeed what I would call south-southwest of C1, you know? They would find wood, uh, as they do this, they find wood at 75 feet down and then for another 15 feet after that, making them once again come to the conclusion that they are drilling down the side of a shaft rather than into a tunnel. I mean, it it is remarkable to me how similar this particular hole was to the previous hole in the very same episode, to the one we talked about at the beginning, DE 1.5 or whatever it is, um, that again, that could be part of the editing process. It does seem a little... Little, little strange to me. Um, and also, as we're talking about this, I suppose what we could be finding here is a debris field um, that they're kind of onto here, and not just a shaft wall. But this is compelling, right? From the from the map they show, it does seem that they're into what um, to the Dunfield Crater area in some respects. Sort of the not the 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 deepest part of it, but sort of the outer workings of the Dunfield Crater, which could explain why they wouldn't find the shaft further up the hole, right? Because Dunfield had already dug up a good 30, 40, 50, I guess, 60 feet of the uh, of the shaft and just didn't really make any, any mention of it or care about it because he didn't care about it. Now, remember, Dun- Dunfield dug this hole up, right? Every searcher shaft, every tunnel that came before him, um, you know, to some degree or another, he dug it all up. Uh, and then when he was finished... Didn't didn't make mention of any of it. Didn't care about any searcher work at all. Was interested in one thing: getting to the bottom of the money pit, which he, where he thought the money pit was, getting the treasure. And then when he was done, he took all that stuff, all that wood, everything, and just filled it all back into the hole with a bulldozer. So, finding shafts and locations of shafts from before Dunfield is exceedingly difficult. And this whole area, once you're within the Dunfield Crater, is uh, suspect at best, at least to a certain level. Now, do they have really good records as to uh, where Dunfield's crater was? They claim they do. I just don't. And they have visuals to help them with the Dunfield Crater. He took a lot of pictures of it. Uh, I just, I don't have... (laughs) I don't have an idea that Robert Dunfield was really all that accurate with his uh, records and that kind of stuff. Anyway, Rick pulls a nail out of a piece of timber he found in one of these uh, one of these uh, uh, samples that they bring out of the drilling. And he takes it to the archaeology trailer to determine that it is indeed a nail from post-1840 origin, making it searcher for sure. This is one of the first times you see them excited about finding essentially finding searcher uh, evidence. Now, again, uh, it's handmade, right? So that would indicate that it would be very early in the search process, right? That it's a handmade nail. And again, this is very interesting, but I would recommend caution in jumping to conclusions here. I I mean, I I think as, as objective viewers and people searching for the truth, we're gonna need a little more than one nail to convince me that they're on shaft six and then therefore only 18 feet away from the location of the original money pit.
All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. There is no new episode of the Curse of Oak Island next week, so I'm going to take the week off uh, from the podcast and uh, celebrate the holidays as best I can, get ready for the following week and the sort of the second half of the season here. Uh, there is apparently a new Maddie Blake behind-the-scenes show airing in its place at 9 p.m. next Tuesday, Eastern. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Could be interesting. Those are always fun, especially for people who are really fans of the show. Uh, just want to remind you again that uh, the Christmas Carol Sit-Downs and Sessions podcast, uh, we did a kind of old-time radio-style play based on the Dickens classic, and yours truly does the narration. I'll put the link on our Facebook page, and you can also find it at sitdownsandsessions.podbean.com and also on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy it. We have a blast doing it every year. It'll also air this Friday, Christmas Eve, at 1 p.m. on WDVR-FM, which broadcasts out of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Speaking of WDVR, don't forget every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m., you can find me hosting the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 p.m. playing the music of New Orleans, and then from 4 to 5 p.m. hosting a show called Island Vibes, where I play music with a little bit of a tropical feel to it. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org or just by telling Alexa to turn on WDVR. And don't forget, if you really like the show, um, you can keep the show going by becoming a patron. If you think we're worth $5 a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you are enjoying the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, I ask you to please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks, everybody, for doing that. I really do appreciate it. Um, thank you for taking the time out, and thank you so much for the kind words. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Keep in mind, if you send me an email or direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on a future show. So if you don't want it read aloud or you don't, it's not that kind of discussion you want to have, just make a note of it for me. I'll do my best to get back to you uh, uh, through via email or via social media. Don't forget, you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Have a very Merry Christmas, a safe and happy new year. And thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.